7, Los Angeles. This is KPFK 90.7 FM. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Affordable Care Act ups and downs across the country. With expansion in Medicaid for North Carolina, but possibly struck down in Texas for no-cost preventative care. However, a few California counties have helped some contracted employees get health care. Here are today's headlines. Executive Director Kathy Sutton of SERP, Sensory Integration Education and Resource Foundation, speaks of the importance of Autism Awareness Month. Birthing Justice airs on PBS to celebrate Black Maternal Health Week. Presidents of the largest economy in Latin America and the largest economy in Asia have an informal meeting. International news from outside the, the NATO-controlled media sphere. Commentary with Dr. Sakibu Hutchison of the Women's Leadership Project. And the community calendar. All this and more coming up. At Tuesday's City of Inglewood Council meeting, the mayor and council members received a staff report recommending to approve and adopt a resolution regarding revisions to the Inglewood Transit Connector Project. According to the council meeting's agenda documents, the Inglewood Transit Connector, a 1.6-mile-long, three-station, fully elevated and electrical-powered automated transit system, that will connect passenger to passengers to and from the Metro K lines downtown Inglewood Station to the city's new housing, employment, sports, and entertainment areas. The primary modifications to the project include the relocation of the maintenance and storage facility from the approved location at 500 East Manchester Boulevard to the Market Street Florence Avenue station site, the construction of a new SCE substation, the realignment and reduction in the height of the guideway along Market Street, and other minor project modifications. The city of Inglewood's desire to respond to community input resulted in the city proposing to modify the project design in a manner that does not require their acquisition of the property at 500 East Manchester Boulevard and retains the existing Vaughn supermarket gas station and neighboring on-site retail uses, results in less overall construction and potentially generate cost saving and reduction in components of the construction schedule. According to some Inglewood residents who remember when there was not a Vaughn supermarket in the heavily populated area, this first addendum to the project results in Inglewood not becoming a food desert again with the removal of a major grocery store. To read the 457-page first addendum to the Inglewood Transit Connector Project, go to cityofinglewood.org. Grocery store workers from seven UFCW unions representing over 100,000 Kroger and Albertsons employees in 12 states and the District of Columbia have been holding actions in front of stores since April 4th to connect with customers about the impacts of the proposed mega merger. In Los Angeles on Thursday, April 13th, workers and community members will hold a rally outside of Ralph's store at 3410 West 3rd Street and hand out grocery bags with hashtag stop the merger messages, as well as educational handbills about the proposed mega merger. 
If the $24.6 billion mega merger is approved, it will drive out competition, increase food prices, create food deserts, and put 100,000 union jobs at risk. The growing opposition is asking the Federal Trade Commission to block the mega merger from moving forward and block its negative impact on both consumers and labor markets. To view the list of actions, go to NoGroceryMerger.com. That's NoGroceryMerger.com. The Los Angeles County Department of Economic Opportunity announces the release of the America's Job Centers of California Modernization Request for Proposals. Guided by the Board of Supervisors, the L.A. County Workforce Development Board, stakeholders and community members, the AJCC Modernization RFP aims to streamline and strengthen Los Angeles County's public workforce system, which meets the hiring and training needs, workers, employees, and currently serves more than 18,000 job seekers and 4,000 businesses per year through 18 America's Job Centers of California countywide. This RFP is seeking nonprofit organizations, for-profit organizations, public agencies, social enterprises, public or private higher education institutions, and similar organizations that will administer services as a one-stop AJCC operator and comprise the network of LA County's AJCCs that make up the public workforce system. The county's America's Job Centers of California Network provides a comprehensive range of no-cost programs, services, and resources for businesses and workers, including help with finding job openings, obtaining training, and counseling, career counseling, assessing supportive services, and connecting skilled workforce to quality jobs. Kelly Lowe Bianco, director of the newly created Department of Economic Opportunity, states, we are reimagining the L.A. County public workforce to be more proactive and responsive in addressing the needs of our diverse communities. Many who have lacked meaningful access or have been historically disinvested by the system through no fault of their own. Lobianco further explains, DEO recognizes the immense value and critical role community-based organizations play in building trust and delivering effective programs and services to communities far and wide. Notice of intent to, to submit a proposal is due May 4th, 2023, with final proposal submissions due June 22nd, 2023. Interested proposers must attend a mandatory virtual proposers conference on April 27th, 2023. You must RSVP by April 20th. To view these dates and deadlines, go to opportunity.lacounty.com. Gov. Motion led by L.A. County Supervisor Janice Hahn last month proclaims the month of April as Autism Awareness and Acceptance Month throughout L.A. County. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, one in four, one in 44 children in 2021 is diagnosed with Autism Spectrum Disorder, ASD. In California, the statistic is even narrower at 1 in 26 children. Chances are many of us may know and love someone with ASD and other special needs. Individuals with ASD are each unique and have a range of challenges, including social and communication, such as nonverbal and limited verbal skills. Joining the effort in promoting autism awareness is Kathy Sutton, founder and executive director of SURF, Sensory Integration Education and Resource Foundation. Sutton explains the range of challenges and shares her personal experience with autism spectrum disorder in her family. Well, there are so many different variations of autism. It can go anywhere from mild to just severe. So, you know, and what people need to understand that having autism is not picnic in the park for any parents or anyone or caregivers that have to take care of these individuals. 
And what they need to understand is that there's certain certain treatment out for them and certain you know remedies for them and things and things of that nature that can help them along. And autism is just really the spectrum of autism has seems to have a touch of sensory issues because sometimes when the sensory issue kicks in into autism, it could start, you know, it could cause so many different things in a particular person. And it's so many different things that go on when they hit this sensory peak. What do you mean sensory peak? Well, what happens is to give you an example, say if somebody can't stand a certain pitch of sound and that pitch it becomes, you know, uh, they're aware of that pitch is there and it's continuous and everything. So what happens is they try to do everything to kind of get 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 away from it and get that pitch out of their, you know, their area. And sometimes it can cause them head banging, you know, kicking, feet banging, and just you know behavior that a lot of people, you know, are not used to. But they could have basically a meltdown. People who are not familiar with autism, what should we know and what should we be doing? Well, it all depends. It all depends because there is not one particular solution or one particular, you know, type of of behavior because there's some kids that have autism and some of them, you know, some of them are really functionable and that's when they get into the Asperger's syndrome. So it can go from Asperger to severe autism, and therefore it's like a lot of stuff in between. So it's you know it's basically hard to like put your finger on this and put your finger on that, and really you know understand because there's so many different type of behaviors that comes with it. So just like I said, each child is different, but you know you can't use the same method method on every single child that supposedly have this behavior and have this diagnosis because each one of them are completely different. Heard you say that you have a son that has been diagnosed with autism. So tell us that story. Oh, well, what happened was I had my second child and when I was eight weeks pregnant, he was diagnosed as having Down syndrome. And so they, you know, they try to give you the whole routine or the whole counseling method. You know, he may not be able to walk. He may not be able to run. He may not be able to talk. He may, you know, they give you the worst possible scenario of what happens to this child. And, you know, I thought about it and, you know, they were encouraged me to, you know, they encouraged me to abort and things of that nature. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. I'm not, I don't think I'm ready to do that. And on his, when they would give uh, the ultrasounds and showing him in the wound, he was, uh, he was a busy body. He was all over the place. And I was like, no, he's too active. Happened. It puts you in such a space where you are just so devastated because you were like, why me? Why did this end up, you know, being me? I picked up the phone and I called the Down Syndrome Society And I talked to somebody there and I said, they gave me the worst possible case that it could be. And she told me, she said that, you know, to have those worst possible cases is not common. You know, it's either mild to moderate, but, you know, it's only a few cases that can be really severe. So I was like, okay. So I went along with the pregnancy and everything. And then he was born and he was such an angel. As time went on. He was not, you know, he was so active that I was wondering, I said, okay, something else is going on here. And I don't know what it is, but then normally I'm not, you know, normally they're not very active. They're very calm. They're very subdued. But then this is not every case. So because of his activity, I was like, okay, something else is going on here. And nobody, nobody knew what it was. And Finally, I, you know, finally, because me being uh, working in a law firm, I just dug and dug and dug and dug and dug until I found out. And what I found out, uh, his other diagnosis was sensory processing disorder. And once we started getting occupational therapy for him and to kind of help him be able to maintain when his senses would escalate and try to, you know, have methods where he can calm down without just totally getting out of control. 
later on, they are the different diagnoses that are going on. They, you know, they have them today, but at that time they did not have them. So later on, I found a clinic that specializes in this. And it was the Ayers Clinic over in Torrance, California. And Jean Ayers had found out the kids had sensory processing disorder. And with the sensory processing disorder, sometimes it can act like, you know, it can act like autism and, you know, and and sometimes it happens in, uh, in other disorders. So sometimes the kid may have one disorder and sometimes he'll have dual prognosis or disorders. Started to get therapy over there. I didn't think he would ever be potty trained. After, you know, therapy for a few months and stuff, he started, he was potty trained. And I was like, wow. So I was like, it's something to this. So what I did is I got more involved in the organization to really learn more about this. And when I started learning about this, I was like, totally wow. A couple of people told me that it looks like he, not only does he have sensory, because most children with Down syndrome and autism, sensory is the, you know, can be another component of it. But something else was going on because he was way too active. You know, eventually I had him re-diagnosed and they diagnosed him as having autism on top of it all. But now you would not believe that was the same young child that I had now that he's he's an adult now. He's 28 years old and He's staying in a home with three other guys and he loves it to death. He has his independence and he's able to do things. But he doesn't, he's not verbalizing yet, but he understands everything you say. If you give him a command or give him something to do, he'll go right and do it and he'll know what he's doing. But as far he'll now he'll may say how how are you or hi or bye or you know just simplistic things. So so we accept that. We basically accept that. So what what we do to communicate, we tell him, you know, we'll say to him certain things and he'll either agree or disagree. So long story short, a clinic that or the organization that I was depending on, I decided to just go there and volunteer my time and work there to find out more. Then after a while, the organization shut down and I'm like, Okay, so where is all these people going to go at this point? So myself and two other therapists got together and we started it back in 2005. Tell us how we can find SURF. Well, we're on the internet at SURF.org, S-I-E-R-F.org. We're always having events. So we have like a toy giveaway in the December And in August, we have a back-to-school giveaway so the kids can get their backpacks and school supplies and start school in September. One thing I think is the most important thing is to find out what your child's interest is. If they're interested in music, please let them listen to music. If they're interested in some other things, let them do it. Because what you want to do, you want them to build the strength that they have and something that they're good at. And that helps them along, you know, the whole path of it. What word of advice would you give parents who just have a child who just been recently diagnosed? It's not the end of the world. But if they're lacking in one area, they excel. So they excel in another area. So you never know what their talent will be. Once they get enthusiastic about something, they become really great at it. If anybody's seeing this and they need some advice or what have you, they can email us. They can also call us. Our number is 310-502-0452. And, you know, if nobody's there to pick up the call, leave a message. We always get back to you because we're always on the ground working. I'm Angela Birdsong with More Than a Sparrow Productions, reporting for KPFK News. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Hi, everyone. I know you've heard our fundraisers and likely thought, yeah, I should likely give something back to KPFK. Well, now's the time to do it. We all understand the value of separating luxuries from necessities and deciding what's truly essential. KPFK 
is one of those essentials. We provide in-depth, cutting-edge, intelligent coverage, and it starts with our amazing staff and volunteer programmers and with your financial support. Contributions from our listeners add up to the largest share of funding that pays the bills here at KPFK. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, encouraging you to become a KPFK Sustainers Circle member now. A sustaining contribution of just $20 or more a month is one of the most popular levels for our donors, and it takes just minutes to contribute. Just go to kpfk.org slash support, then click Sustainers Circle, or call 818-985-2711. Thank you so much for your donation to KPFK, radio powered by the people. Thank you, thank you, Margaret Prescott, and you guys heard the lady. Go to kpfk.org and pledge securely online. L.A. County Supervisors Janice Hahn and Hilda Salas moved to have equitable access to health care for outsource employees, identified as Agenda Number 5 during last week's Board of Supervisors weekly meeting. Los Angeles County depends on contracted workforce of over 2,000 security, janitorial, environmental, and food service workers, with the bulk of this workforce servicing the Department of Health Services, DHS, operated facilities. These contracted workers provide critical services that keep Department of Health Services, hospitals, clinics, and juvenile halls operational. Many of these contracts are governed by Proposition A, which allows for outsourcing of services normally performed by county employees. While contracted security, janitorial, environmental, and food service workers play an essential role in county operations, they are compensated below the industry standard. In fact, in April 30th, 2018, report by the county chief executive office on Prop A contracts confirmed that the county's current outsourcing practices generate savings through lowered employee benefits. These frontline workers predominantly come from low-income communities and communities of color throughout the county. Many governmental entities in California, most recently San Diego County, have set contracting standards to ensure that public dollars are not driving poverty in low-income communities and communities of color. On December 13, 2021, San Diego County supervisors voted to enact a responsible contractor policy that ensures labor harmony and minimum wage and benefit standards for contract employees. Additionally, the counties of Santa Clara and San Francisco have similar policies in place. Furthermore, the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors passed motions to study this issue and stated it is their moral imperative to ensure that workers providing critical services and Department of Health Services manage facilities through Prop A contracts have minimum standards of, for health care benefits. The Chief Executive Office, along with the Department of Health Services, County Council, and Internal Services Department to develop and implement a policy to require all new Proposition A contracts for security, janitorial, environmental, and food services at county hospitals managed by the Department of Health Services in fiscal year 2023 to 2024 to require 100% employer-paid health care benefits for employees who work 30 hours or more per week at the minimum level of the Affordable Care Act gold level. This will be implemented as soon as practical, no later than December 31st, 2023. You can view the County of Los Angeles Board of Supervisors weekly agenda and the specifics of this motion on their website at bos.lacounty.gov. In celebration of Black Maternal Health Week, numerous PBS stations throughout the United States are helping to bring awareness to the Black maternal and infant health crisis. By airing the film Birthing Justice, Every Woman Deserves a Beautiful Birth Story. This film covers the maternal health crisis within the African-American community and articulates best practices to enhance birthing equity for all women, especially Black women. The filmmakers 
explore what they are calling a national epidemic in four regions, Washington, D.C., Augusta, Georgia, and several areas in Missouri and California. They interviewed women affected by current policies, birthing moms and healthcare professionals, as well as birthing advocates, activists, and policymakers at the forefront of advancing policy change. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, black women are three times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause than white women. Multiple factors contributed to these disparities, such as variation in health quality health care, underlying chronic conditions, structural racism, and implicit biases. Birthing Justice strongly noted that the high mortality rates among black women are not due to their genetic makeup, what they ate, how they behaved, nor any bad habits placed them in this situation. When compared to poor white women with less education, black women are worse, had worse death rates. Black women are unable to buy or educate themselves out of being a statistic when it comes to pregnancy-related deaths. The cause is not race, but racism. April Valentine, 31 years old, planned to celebrate her new birth with family and friends, but instead her loved ones found themselves in front of Centinella Hospital in Inglewood, California on January 28, 2023, protesting her death. Valentine's family alleges that she complained about leg pain for hours during the birth of her child on January 10th, but was ignored and neglected by her caretakers at the medical center that specializes in maternal care. Valentine, pregnant with her first child, died that day. Her plight is only one episode, advocates say, in what is an escalating crisis affecting black women during pregnancy throughout California and across the country. Denise Pines, the executive producer of Birthing Justice and co-founder of Women in the Room Productions, recommends supporting and volunteering with organizations that do the much-needed work to address pregnancy-related deaths of black mothers and babies and to get better outcomes overall. Women in the Room Productions partner with the National Birth Equity Collaborative, one of the leading policy organizations in the country, to support legislation and public education they believe will make a difference. One such policy change is the Black Maternal Health Momnibus. Act of 2021, which is comprised of 12 bills addressing various dimensions of the black maternal health crisis. One of the bill's sponsors, U.S. Representative Lauren Underwood, Democrat in Illinois District 14, appeared in the film. Lee Puri, Senior Manager of Community Health, Blue Shield of California's Health Transformation Lab, spoke with California Black Media, stating that this film will shine light on the critical issue of saving lives, and this film will help ensure that every pregnant and birthing person's voice is heard. Puri further explains this film will help ensure that people have access and receive all the support they need to feel safe and cared for. Racism exists and it's and it exists in healthcare. For more information about the movement to ensure birthing justice for black mothers and their families and to commemorate Black Maternal Health Week by watching the film on your local PBS station or to find a film screening in your area, visit Birthing Justice. Dot com. Now we will go to some international news, a power confab this week with the presidents of the largest economy in Latin America and the largest economy in Asia. Don DeBar has more. A musical welcome in Shanghai for Brazil's president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, as he arrived late Wednesday for a state visit to the People's Republic of China. He will stay in Shanghai for two days before traveling to Beijing to meet with China's President Xi Jinping. The leaders of the two BRICS countries are expected to sign more than a dozen deals during the trip. Journalist Chen Tang is with China's global television network CGTN. She was at Shanghai's Anqiao International Airport for Lula's arrival and 
filed this report. Brazilian President Lula's China visit starts from here in Shanghai. And during his trip in Shanghai, he will be attending the inauguration ceremony for the new president of the new development bank, which headquartered here in Shanghai's Pudong New Area. And the new president of the bank is actually the former president of Brazil, Dilma Rousseff. And Lula is also expected to visit the Huawei Innovation Center in Shanghai and also meet some Brazilian entrepreneurs and then head to Beijing to meet Chinese President Xi Jinping. It has been the fifth time for Lula to come to China. His first time actually was in 2001, when he was the honorary president of the Workers' Party. And then he came to China three times as the president of Brazil. And this time he's bringing a delegation team of over 200 members. Most of them are entrepreneurs. And according to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs at Brazil, uh, the two countries are expected to sign some 20 deals in industries including healthcare, education, agriculture and finance. Earlier, Lula also told uh, media that he would like to invite Chinese President Xi Jinping to Brazil and to show him some of the projects Lula hopes to see more Chinese investment. China has been Brazil's largest trading partner for over a decade, and one-third of Brazil's exports actually go to China. Just last month, the two countries signed a deal to dish U.S. dollar in favor of using their own currencies in trade transactions. So all of these are showing how determined these two BRICS nations, these two emerging econ economies, are expected to promote their mutual benefits. Chen Tong, CJTN, from Hongqiao International Airport in Shanghai. For more on that, we go to Sao Paulo, Brazil and speak with journalist Camilla Escalante. Uh, Camilla, first of all, uh, great to have you with us. Uh, I guess it's just you and me this week, and uh, big stuff, of course. We we're talking about uh, the B and C in the BRICS uh, construct, which is the sort of the ground zero of uh, the rising multipolar world. So let's uh, take a closer look. Well, Lula has already arrived in Shanghai. It's his first stop during his visit. He was received by former president of Brazil, who is now the president of the New Development Bank, that is the Bank of the BRICS, Dilma Rousseff. Yep. And so tomorrow, there is going to be um, a swearing-in ceremony. She's already been at work the last two weeks there in Shanghai, which is the headquarters of the BRICS Bank. And But the actual ceremony that's going to officialize everything is going to be tomorrow, and Lula, of course, is going to be attending. And and he's there in China with a huge delegation. I counted about six or seven state governors, but he's also there with businessmen, senators, deputies, and ministers from all sorts of ministries. And it's important to um, to highlight that he's there with so many businessmen because it's so important uh, for Brazil to be able to promote different sectors and make a wide range of deals, uh, you know, around 20 or more bilateral agreements may be signed when he meets with President Xi Jinping. That will be on Friday. So he will be heading to Beijing uh, from Shanghai. And so there's just huge economic and geopolitical importance for both Brazil and China. He'll be doing these official visits, not only with President Xi, but he'll also be uh, meeting with the president of the Congress, um, and other authorities. And of course, the signing of all of those um, agreements, he'll be, you know, doing these sort of symbolic uh, appearances at the Tiananmen Square, um, and all sorts of other things. But, um, you know, it's really important because it's this China is Brazil's largest trading partner. Since 2009, it, uh, you know, China imports almost 90 billion in Brazilian products, the number one product being soy, uh, but other other products as well. And so, you know, Lula is just past uh, the three-month mark in office. Actually, we're just at about 100 days in office. Right. And so he has a lot of challenges. There were a lot of, you know, issues with the way in which the Brazilian state and industries were absolutely abandoned under the Jair Bolsonaro uh, government. And so now... He's trying to come in. Lula da Silva and his administration are trying to come in and, you know, confront some of these challenges now with the help of China. And so, you know, there's a lot that China and Brazil can do together in terms of looking at ways to alleviate, um, you know, some of the inequality that has worsened in recent years in Brazil, um, looking at, you know, adopting some of the most 
or the more successful hunger alleviation and poverty alleviation programs that have been implemented by the Chinese government, and also looking at ways to help small-scale farmers in Brazil, which are such an important, uh, such important contributors to the national economy and uh, provide, you know, the food for the Brazilian people, but also helping those small-scale farmers so that they can help the national economy by exporting to, of course, China and other places. This requires a technology transfer. This requires um, a lot of the things that China has already figured out on their own. And so, you know, one of the most important and fascinating things in Brazilian society is, you know, the strength of the social movements, which I know that you've uh, probably seen some of that, Don. And of course, the landless workers movement, the MST, which is the agrarian reform, land reform movement there in Brazil, you know, one of their demands and one of the things they've looked at is, you know, the successful models of China in terms of agriculture, in terms of helping small-scale farmers. And this is something that they're looking at, too. So it's not just the business sector. It's not just, well, the auto sector, but also, you know, small-scale uh, producers, farmers there in Brazil, who are also hoping that this trip will have Lula coming back with some really good agreements that actually can help them back in Brazil. You know, it's interesting looking at uh, the various um, the trade patterns that exist now uh, between um, the particularly looking at uh, Brazil and South Africa um, in, in their relationship with uh, China. First of all, in each case, is the largest uh, trading partner. Um, with so we're looking at uh, somewhere around ninety billion dollars a year in exports to China from Brazil, um, and uh, about fourteen percent uh, of uh, of South Africa's, or that's out of one hundred and eight billion. So you're talking about maybe fifteen billion dollars worth of exports. Still the largest export partner for South Africa as well, um, and the imports of uh, Brazil. Um, from China at uh, about 47, 48, maybe around 50 billion by now, because these are 2020 numbers. Uh, and and it's uh, about 18% of 100 billion or $18 billion for South Africa. Again, China the largest, and Germany the second largest import partner for South Africa, with the U.S. trailing third at half of what Germany does. In other words, this group is is developing and and these these numbers are almost double what they were 10 years ago uh, between these countries this group is developing sort of a cohesive organic economy um among you know the the five and then this constellation of nations that are you know asking applying whatever term you want to use you know they want to play too and and this is an alternative to the u.s European colonial, in essence, uh, uh, economic construct that, that straddled the planet by itself until very recently. Yeah, absolutely. And so all of this is taking place, you know, within the context of various countries in Latin America, but also just throughout the global south, looking to China, but also other partners of the global south they no longer want, you know, everything having to do with trade, but also political relations to facilitated or filtered through the United States and Europe. And it's important to say that this uh, trip, this official trip uh, by Lula and this massive delegation from Brazil to China was supposed to take place at the end of uh, March and he fell ill. So it was, of course, postponed. But there was a whole delegation that went ahead of him uh, for preparation, and they actually attended um, a sort of bilateral conference there that was organized by Apex Brazil, uh, which is um, the state-owned company for the promotion of exports and investments, and they went ahead with their agenda, and they were actually able to score some really important deals there, um, and the most important one is that China and Brazil is going to be able to conduct bilateral trade directly between the Chinese yuan and the Brazilian real, including the U.S. dollar as a method of payment. And this is something that all sorts of countries are looking to do. They made other um, other agreements as well uh, during those days that those uh, the different uh, authorities of the Brazilian state and also businessmen went ahead and uh, and fulfilled that, that agenda on behalf of, of Lula. And so this is just going to, you know, continue. I think, um, you know, Brazil is also looking at ways 
to better facilitate trade between, uh, you know, this massive economy and its neighbors in Argentina, a very key uh, trade partner and neighbor for Brazil yeah. as well, and Uruguay. That those were his first two stops, um, or the first two official visits that he made during this uh, presidential term. Of course, the next one was the United States. He had a fairly brief agenda there, and it's just very, you know, clear what Lula's intentions are. His intentions are to strengthen the um, the Brazilian economy and become a leader for our entire hemisphere. This is the largest democracy in our hemisphere on, on the American continent, unless you believe the U.S. is some sort of a democracy as well. <laughs> and so it's extremely key what's taking place right now. And, you know, all eyes are there on Beijing for that meeting on Friday. Okay, Camilla, thanks a lot for all of that. And we'll pick it up next week. Thank you so much. For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar. A couple of months ago was World Radio Day with the theme of Radio for Peace. If love and peace are not enough to motivate you to support KPFK, Pacifica Radio for Southern California Beyond, let us show you a little play on KPFK words. So you guys already know, KPFK is a non-commercial, listener-sponsored, educational radio. Educational radio. Remember what I said last week. This is where I learn radio, guys. Okay, and with program with your open mind as well as your heart, your spirit, your physical wellness, and your social connections. KPFK is your, check out this breakdown, KPFK is your key to peacemaking, freedom, and knowledge. Key to peacemaking, freedom, and knowledge. I like that. KPFK, right? Okay, so PF and our call letters stand for Pacifica Foundation, a nonprofit that for 75 years has lived up to its mission of promoting peace and understanding among people of all nations, creeds, colors, and philosophies. Unlike some commercial or public radio stations, we won't be changing your brand, our brand, our mission, your brand, because remember, this is listener supported. Our brand, your brand, our mission together. But we need your support to stay the course and renew and refresh our commitment and to our engagement with new generations, new generation. Remember, we talked about that generational listening last week. I'm third generation and there's a fourth generation behind me of KPFK membership and listenership. So go to KPFK.org and pledge securely online. And now international news from non-NATO media with Polina Vasiliev. For KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, here are today's international highlights with a special focus on non-NATO media. Round two of a strike by junior doctors has gotten underway in England, with some authorities calling it the most destructive industrial action in the history of the National Health Service. Saeed Pereza reports from London. The UK government calls their pay demands unrealistic, but these junior doctors say that's simply what they are worth. Four days of strikes, with the government yet to come up with what the unions call a credible offer. The strikes come in the wake of a four-day bank holiday weekend, causing a level of disruption unseen since public sector strikes began last summer. But the doctors here tell us they were left with no choice. Junior doctors, all qualified doctors training to reach consultant level, account for about half of all physicians working within the NHS with pay packets ranging between $36,000 and $71,000 a year. But pay, the doctors say, is one reason they're on the picket line. The NHS is in a crisis. We are in recruitment and retention crisis when it comes to junior doctors. At the moment, there are over 7 million patients on the NHS waiting list. And to put that into perspective, it's more than the entire population of Scotland. This is only going to get worse as junior doctors are leaving in their droves to countries where they feel better valued. The British Medical Journal says last year alone nearly 7,000 UK doctors applied for a certificate to work abroad, mainly in Australia, New Zealand and Canada. 
The British Medical Association, which represents doctors, is asking for a pay rise of 35 percent. The government says that pay demand is out of step with other settlements in the public sector, and accuses the BMA of maintaining a militant stance. The striking doctors disagree. We are being militant in what we want in terms of we want our voices to be heard. And we would demonstrate how integral we are to the NHS without doing so. So, we were militant in ensuring a 72-hour strike as our first strike to really highlight how key junior doctors are at present to the NHS and to the future of the NHS. A future that is now in doubt with a push for privatization. This week's action by junior doctors will mean an estimated 200,000 appointments, procedures, even time-sensitive cancer treatments delayed. This is the latest in a wave of industrial action by public sector workers in the UK, demanding pay hikes to match inflation that exceeds 10%. Underpaid, overworked, and demoralized, these doctors work for a national health service that's teetering, stricken by strikes and mired in dispute. South Korean opposition is seeking peace and an apology for U.S. spying. Details with Press TV's Frank Smith. Lee Jae-myung, the leader of South Korea's opposition Democratic Party, met the foreign press in Seoul Tuesday. The visit comes following a leak of U.S. spying on high-level South Korean officials. Democratic Party lawmakers argue President Yoon Suk-yeol's administration should demand transparency from Washington. I would like to urge the National Assembly to investigate the reality of wiretapping as much as possible, and if this is true, there should be efforts to prevent recurrence, an apology from the U.S. government and prevention of wiretapping. He also tackled the South Korean president's policy toward North Korea, suggesting recent large-scale joint U.S.-South Korea military exercises were responsible for rising tension. Peace through strength is an important and realistic value, but that is not enough. Since we are the biggest victims of the crisis on the Korean Peninsula, as the crisis intensifies, we must make much more efforts for dialogue than before. His Democratic Party predecessor, former President Moon Jae-in, had managed to calm tensions on the Korean Peninsula through a series of summits with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. But that strategy has been abandoned, with ever larger U.S.-South Korea war games planned for later this year to celebrate the 70th anniversary of their alliance. U.S. and South Korean officials are constantly emphasizing the strength of their alliance. The CIA leak of U.S. spying on South Korean officials comes at an awkward time for U.S. President Joe Biden and South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol, with the two scheduled to summit in Washington later this month. Newly surfaced evidence points to Ukraine's infamous Azov Battalion as a breeding ground for white supremacist ideas, possibly directly influencing the racially motivated mass killing in Christchurch in New Zealand in 2019. RT correspondent Che Bose has this story. The tranquility of New Zealand's capital, Christchurch, was shattered by the most brutal mass killing in the country's history. 51 innocent Muslims were massacred by white supremacist Brenton Tarrant. An image that emerged only days ago confirms what many believe the mass killer was trained and indoctrinated by none other than Ukraine's infamous Azov Battalion. The image showing Tarrant's attendance at an Azov training camp appeared on the social media pages of dedicated Azov member Konstantin Zelitsky who confirmed the killer had indeed trained with the neo-Nazi group prior to 2019. Even in his sinister manifesto, Tarrant mentioned that he had visited Ukraine. However, he apparently didn't find it wide enough to de-radicalize and settle there. You will find no reprieve, not in Iceland, not in Poland, not in New Zealand, not in Argentina, not in Ukraine, not anywhere in the world. I know because I have been there. Tarrant also wore a neo-Nazi Black Sun symbol on his flak jacket during the attack. Interestingly, the Black Sun has only recently been removed from the Azov's unit crest and flags. These links were enough for U.S. congressmen to raise the alarm about any support Washington might provide to Azov. 
Soon after the Christchurch attack, 40 American politicians signed a letter to the U.S. Secretary of State asking why Azov hadn't been designated as a terrorist organization. The letter echoed a 2017 warning by the FBI that Azov were aligned with American white supremacists, eager to get the group's unhindered access to weapons and military training. The Christchurch New Zealand massacre was a turning point for counterterrorism efforts. In his manifesto, the shooter claimed he had trained with the Azov Battalion in Ukraine, and he routinely wore a neo-Nazi symbol associated with them. Both the Poway, California and El Paso, Texas shooters said they were directly influenced by the terrorism committed at Christchurch. The link between Azov and acts of terror in America is clear. Since Russia's operation in Ukraine, Western politicians and their client media seem to be suffering from collective amnesia when it comes to Azov. There was a time, however, when this dangerous group was seen for what it is. So while Tarrant's ties to Azov were known in 2019, the mainstream media essentially hushed up the link, with the New Zealand government also conveniently finding no evidence of Tarrant's ties to Azov. The selective amnesia about Ukraine's Nazi problem has only escalated, with the wives of its leaders now invited to Europe by the likes of German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock, who didn't seem to notice her guests' obsession with Nazi salutes. We know who it is. It's Katerina Prokopenko. As the West turns a blind eye to the crimes of Azov while flooding Ukraine with weapons and cash, it could have created a perfect neo-Nazi storm on its own doorstep. And that's all in today's international highlights from non-NATO media. For KPFK, I'm Paulina Vasilyev. KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Here is a commentary from Dr. Sakivu Hutchison, founder of Women's Leadership Project, giving a voice to black women regarding gun violence, intimate partner violence, work violence, and more. Audre Lorde once wrote that there is no such thing as a single-issue struggle because we do not live single-issue lives. Lorde was a literary badass who never held her tongue or shied away from calling out how white supremacy and black sexism led to, quote, scarred, broken, battered, and dead daughters and sisters whose trauma never makes headlines. When I desperately needed Lord's voice in my teens and 20s, I became one of those battered sisters, surviving intimate partner violence in a world where so-called good black women did not buck black patriarchy, the black church, or any other symbol of black gender orthodoxy. Then as now, these institutions demanded that survivors remain silent about domestic violence and sexual abuse. This 21st century culture of silence is especially pronounced when it comes to black women's experiences with gun violence in the context of intimate partner violence and sexual violence. As the U.S. marks the grim milestone of over 140 mass shootings this year, Every day, black men, black women, and black communities continue to shoulder the disproportionate weight of normalized death and violence. According to every town policy and research, African Americans experience nearly 10 times the gun homicides, 15 times the gun assaults, and three times the fatal police shootings of white Americans. Nonetheless, gun violence in black communities is marginalized, as well as pathologized viewed as a symptom of the racist stereotype that black folks in the so-called inner city are more prone to criminal violence. And it is downplayed in mainstream narratives about the prevalence of gun violence overall. Commenting in Essence magazine, former Ohio congressional candidate Desiree Timms wrote, as devastating as it is to acknowledge, America's gun violence problem particularly haunts black women our sons, brothers, and fathers are 10 times more likely to die from gun violence than their white counterparts. Equally as troubling, black women die from gun-related domestic partner abuse at disproportionately higher rates than any other group. And black women are more likely to die from gun violence than our white men. These two key facts continue to drive a wedge in racial justice activism. Time and again, black women across sexuality and gender identity are mowed down in disproportionate numbers 
Yet the stigma around black feminist anti-violence prevention education and engagement remains. Despite the fact that domestic and sexual violence affect the bodies of women of color every day, quietly under the radar, domestic violence generally only pricks public consciousness when there is a high-profile tragedy against white women or mass shooting rampage committed by a stalker abuser. As the African-American Policy Forum noted recently, quote, such violence has long been a public health issue and central concern for all women and black women in particular, yet it has been largely overlooked by the public, state, and judicial systems. In March 2021, the African-American Policy Forum released a series of memes on the impact of so-called private violence on black women and girls. Black women are 2.5 times more likely to die by homicide, be they trans or cis. The majority are killed by an intimate partner or relative. Black women are also more likely to experience sexual harassment at work. Normalized violence, coupled with systemic disparities in wages and health care access, have devastating implications for young black girls into adulthood. In schools where youth have little to no sexual harassment prevention education, Victim-blaming and shaming of black girls are legion. And when there is no attention to the culturally specific ways black girls are hypersexualized and adultified, both by the dominant white culture and African-American culture, black girls are targeted as unrapeable aggressors who provoke violence by flouting so-called respectability. And when there continues to be denial about the gravity of sexual assault, rape, and domestic violence in black communities, all black children and black people suffer. For example, in California, where homelessness among African Americans has skyrocketed, one in three black women have experienced intimate partner and domestic violence. And domestic violence is one of the leading catalysts for homelessness among women. Yet as the Little Hoover Commission noted, California does not have a substantial prevention or early intervention program. Last year, the California Partnership to End Domestic Violence asked the state legislature for over $15 million from the Department of Public Health to coordinate statewide sexual and domestic violence prevention efforts. Part of that funding would go to prevention education. A core piece would provide assistance to young men and boys who are experiencing domestic abuse-related trauma. Although California passed a sweeping California Healthy Youth Act in 2016, mandating comprehensive HIV-AIDS and sexual violence prevention instruction for middle through high school grades, the reality is most students only receive piecemeal instruction, if any. In the midst of escalating racialized state violence and terrorism, the focus on ending rape culture and domestic violence disproportionately impacting black women and girls across sexuality must not dim. Investing in prevention and black girls' self-determination will ensure that this deadly reality of, quote, one in three broken, battered, and dead sisters comes to an end. This Saturday at 11 a.m., the Women's Leadership Project and the Standing for Black Girls Coalition will hold a community action and art-making event amplifying the lives of missing and murdered black women, femme, and girl domestic violence victims across sexuality in Lemur Park. For more information, check out www.womensleadershipla.org. My name is Sakivu Hutchinson from the Women's Leadership Project, reporting for Rebel Alliance News. All right, you guys know we are in Fun Drive right now. Membership Fun Drive. We're looking for our sustainers. We're looking for people to come back. We're looking for people to stay. We're looking at people to go up to the next level. We're looking for that generational, generational listenership, generational membership, like me and my family, right? Okay, so go to kpfk.org and make sure that you pledge. If you want to hear people like me on the air, if you want to hear what I'm getting ready to read to you guys, the the calendar, community calendar, there's some events on this calendar that you are not going to hear other places. So here's the Rebel Alliance News community calendar as you go to kpfk.org and pledge. Black Women for Wellness is hosting Black Maternal Health Week now to April 17th. 
To find the event schedule, go to bwwla.org. Remember to join Standing for Black Girls Missing and Murder Community Action Saturday, April 15th, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., 4343 Park in Los Angeles. You guys know where Lamert Park is. Go to womensleadershipla.org. Santa Monica Playhouse presents Stogie Kenyatta's acclaimed Broadway-style one-man show, The World is My Home, The Life and Times of Paul Robeson, this Sunday, April 16th at the Santa Monica Playhouse. Go to santamonicaplayhouse.com for more information. And there's a free community food giveaway monthly every third Saturday, April 15th, until supplies are exhausted beginning at 10 a.m. until noon in East Wilmington at 1215 East Rubidoux. Go to covenantblessing.org for details. KPFK.org. Make sure you pledge. I'm Angela Birdsong. Thank you for giving us this time today as we bring you the news at 6 p.m. Join us again tomorrow. Up next, Feminist Magazine. Hi, this is Shepard Farron, and you're listening to KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. This is People Powered Radio. (laughs) 